Well, good morning, church. You guys can go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, as we say see you later to our preschoolers. As we continue to preach through our series of Hebrews, we arrive at Hebrews 12, verse 18. And as you guys are turning there, I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson this morning before we jump into Hebrews. Uh, Because there is a heresy that was introduced back in the second century into Christianity and into Christian thought and practice, and echoes of it still remain today. You see, during the second century, there's a a man named uh, Marcion who gained popularity throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey and where a lot of the early churches were planted. And what Marcion taught was that the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, seemed to be incompatible with one another. I mean, he, he read the Old Testament and he really did not like the God that he thought was described in the Old Testament, right? I mean, he thought the God of the Old Testament really seemed like an angry and a vengeful God and maybe even a violent God, and it really made him feel uncomfortable. That didn't really, he didn't really like to think about God on those terms. He didn't like to think about God being like that. But on the other hand, he really liked the God that he saw the New Testament describe, especially the Apostle Paul, and how God is a gracious God, and a loving God, and a kind God, and that gave him more of the feelings that he liked. And therefore, what he ended up teaching some of his followers was this concept of ditheism, essentially a belief in two gods, uh, that there was one God of the Old Testament and there was a second God of the New Testament, and it was the second God of the New Testament that had sent Jesus to earth to rescue all of us from the God of the Old Testament. And because of that belief, he then created his own Bible, Uh, which if you're ever following someone who starts creating their own Bible, that's when you start really getting nervous, right? And should probably run. Uh, So he he really marked up and cut out things from the Bible. He, He did not, he got rid of the whole Old Testament, of course. But then in the New Testament, he really got rid of most of the Gospels, except one edited version, and then a lot of Paul's epistles, but he cut out all of where Paul quotes the Old Testament, and which happens to be a lot of times that Paul quotes the Old Testament. And uh, he he viewed Paul as being the only legitimate apostle because uh, Jesus' disciples, I mean, they were still really focused on that Old Testament Jewish God, and that was not the God that he served and worshipped. Now, the early church fathers, including uh, Justin Martyr and Tertullian and others, they spoke out against him. They wrote things out against him. He was deemed a heretic. He was excommunicated from the church. However, some of Marcion's teaching is still alive and active today. You see, what he wanted to do was he wanted to choose aspects of God that he liked and that fit his man-made theology. He, He came to God and he had some thoughts about what God, what he wanted God to be like, and he ignored everything that did not fit and fall in line with that narrative. He created a God of his own liking and wanted to worship him on his own terms. He created a God of his own liking and wanted to worship him on his own terms. Church, do we not see this today? 
Don't we see even some of this today in ourselves? Now, now what living and thinking like Marcion will do and what it will lead to is it will lead to either not coming to worship the one true God at all because you've created some sort of idol or some sort of idea of God on, or on your own, or it will lead you to try to offer God your worship on your own terms. And listen, both are unacceptable forms of worship. And this morning, we will see from Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18, that our author is going to teach us about two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And it will be, as we understand both mountains rightly, that we will come to be able to offer God acceptable worship. All right, this is where the passage is going to reach its pinnacle, is going to be verses 28 and 29. Hebrews 12, 28, 29 is where this is all driving and leading towards. And it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Human beings, at our very core, we are worshipers. We were created to glorify God, to worship Him. But church, we have to offer Him acceptable worship. And, and when God's Word tells us here, like it does, to offer Him acceptable worship, He's also teaching us that there is such a thing as unacceptable worship as well. And so we have to come to God, the one true God, on his own terms. But what we will see today is that his terms are wonderful and they are glorious. And so let me pray and we will jump into Hebrews chapter 12. Father God, this is your word and how good you are to provide it to us, to reveal yourself to us through this word. Father, I ask that your truth would shake us to our core, that our eyes would be open to see your glory. God, that you would help us as we, as we talk about some difficult concepts and things for us to get our minds around. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you give light to these things? Would you stir up in us a love for you? And would you help us, Lord, understand what it looks like to offer you acceptable worship? This is our desire. We know we don't always do it right. We don't always do it perfectly. We stumble along the way, but oh Lord, would you be gracious to us? And would you show us and help us today to offer you acceptable worship? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews 12, verse 18. These first few verses, remember, he's going to teach us about acceptable worship by teaching us about two mountains. And these first few verses, he's going to describe Mount Sinai to us. This is coming from Exodus 19 and 20. The nation of Israel has been rescued from slavery out of Egypt. God has led them to Mount Sinai, and now he's going to give them the law. He's going to give them the old covenant, all right? So this is what he's describing here, Mount Sinai, verse, uh, Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched... A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. 
Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. All right, here he's describing that scene on Mount Sinai. And soon in the next few verses, he's going to describe and compare then Mount Zion. But right in these verses, he's setting the scene of Mount Sinai. And, and as he compares these two mountains, both Sinai and Zion, he's comparing both covenants, both the old and the new covenant. For it's both mountains and both, it is both mountains and both covenants that reveal to us some things about our one true God. But Mount Sinai was a terrifying experience for the people to encounter God. I mean, God leading up to this had instructed Moses to have all the people prepare themselves for three days for this encounter. They were to go wash their clothes. They were to consecrate themselves. They were not to take this lightly or go about this flippantly. They were to set limits as to how close they could come to the mountain, even for their livestock. And so they prepared for this encounter for three days. And on the third day, God comes And it is a terrifying experience for them. There's smoke, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's loud trumpets blaring. The Lord descends in a fire. The whole mountain trembles. Moses speaks to God. God's God's voice comes back and answers Moses, and it sounds like the loudest thunder they've ever heard. And it was such a terrifying experience for the people to be in the presence of God. They told Moses, hey, we'll, we'll listen to you, uh, uh, but it is too scary to listen directly to God. Like, why don't you just go be our mediator? Why don't you just go talk to him and then you report back to us? But this is just too terrifying. Mount Sinai was a terrifying experience for sinful people to be in the presence of of a holy God. And what God was teaching them through the thunder and through the lightning and through the smoke and through the loud trumpets and the blazing fire was that a holy God is unapproachable by sinful people. Right? I mean, you don't have to be a master reader of signals to see that God in this scene seems a bit unapproachable. He seems to be putting off some fairly strong stay away vibes, isn't he? I mean, go go today and read Exodus 19 and 20, all right? There are some pretty strong stay away vibes he is putting off. This is not very inviting. This is not coffee and donuts and the chorus like, come now is the time to worship, right? You guys remember that song? That's how you knew it was time to start, right? Come now is the time. I won't sing it, but you remember it. It's a good song. Not that we should do it, but it's, it's ingrained in my mind, right? But, but this is, Sinai was not a very inviting experience. And you could see that, and you could wrongly assume that that is because God is mean, or that is because God is cruel, or that God does prefer to keep his distance. Or like Marcion, you could wrongly assume that this is a completely different God altogether. But listen, this is not because God is mean or God is cruel or because God wants to keep his distance. This is all being done because God is holy. God is holy. 
And so if you have, if you have, a, str- if you have a struggle trying to see and, and kind of how the God of the, how God is, either, what is true of him in the Old Testament is true of him in the New Testament, you have trouble kind of seeing these things. The place to start is the holiness of God. And, and we've all been there, right? We've all tried to kind of see these things and, and wonder how they all line up. And I'm telling you, the holiness of God is where you need to start. And we have a, a book out in the lobby in our resource area, all called The Holiness of God. That is where you need to start. You need to get your mind around the holiness of God. Mount Sinai was terrifying. And while it was not a complete revelation of God to us, it was a necessary part of his revelation to us. But there is good news, church. Sinai is not the mountain we come to stand on and worship God this morning. Same God, different mountain. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have not come to Mount Sinai, right? But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All right, so let's, let's think about now Mount Zion, okay? Uh, the first place we see Zion mentioned in the scriptures is 2 Samuel 5, where King David is doing battle with the Jebusites, and he takes their stronghold, which was called Zion. All right? He then brings the Ark of the Covenant to Zion, and from that point on, Zion was known as the earthly dwelling place of God, right? Because that's where the Ark was. That was God's kind of mobile hotspot for his people. Then in Jerusalem, once the temple was built and, and, and whatnot, that, then the name Zion really became synonymous with Jerusalem in general, as that was where the people gathered under old covenant worship, and that's where they came to enjoy the presence of God. But now, under the new covenant, there is not an earthly Zion that people go to to be in God's presence, but a heavenly Zion that we have already come to. It's, 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 it's not as if someday we will come to Mount Zion. God's word says here that you have come to Mount Zion. And so what we see in verse 22 is that Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem are all describing this same place where we have now come to when we come to worship God. Now, you remember as we've been studying Hebrews, we've been using this language of the already but not yet kingdom that we are a part of. Meaning we are, the the kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet fully realized until Christ returns. The city of the living God that we are now citizens of, we are already citizens of it, but it will not yet be fully realized until Christ returns. And in the same way, We have already come to this mountain. We have already come to Mount Zion. And yet it will not be fully realized and known until Christ returns. But truly, church, you have already come to Mount Zion. God's word says it. When we gather to worship, 
It's as if we are being transported to heaven to worship our great God on this new, in this new city and on this new heavenly mountain. It's incredible what happens when we really think about it as we come together to worship, right? Doesn't, isn't that even what Paul says to Ephesians, that we've been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places? This has already happened. And look who else joins us in the worship on Mount Zion. We'll just go through this phrase by phrase if you're following along there in Hebrews 12. Who else joins us to worship on Mount Zion? Well, we see we are joining with innumerable angels in festal gathering, right? This is describing thousands upon thousands of great angelic beings who are not dressed for a funeral, but it says they are dressed in festal gathering, meaning they are dressed for a celebration, There's a joy and an excitement amongst the heavenly host that we are joining with when we worship. Okay, if you walk in here like you're walking into a funeral, the angels are, you know, likely you're kind of out of sync with them. They're they're ready for a celebration. And not only do we join with the heavenly host and the angels worshiping God, but we join the entire assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Meaning when we worship, we are joining fellow believers from all around the world and all throughout history. We join with all of those who are enrolled in heaven, whose names are written in the book of life. We also see on Mount Zion that we come to God, who is still the judge of all. And yet in Christ we come not with fear of punishment, not with fear of being declared guilty, for now we know that in Christ there is no condemnation. And through faith in Christ we have been justified. We have been legally declared right with God. And on Mount Zion it also says, we come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is referring to those brothers and sisters who have died who are absent from their bodies, but present with the Lord, awaiting the resurrection. And what's so encouraging, though, about this phrase, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, is that in the original Greek, this is written in a passive tense, meaning that these people have been made righteous because something was done to them. God has made them righteous. They did not make themselves righteous. God has made them righteous. But here's the best part of Mount Zion. Look at verse 24. Jesus is there. Jesus is there. Our mediator of a new covenant whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice and vengeance. Christ's blood cries out forgiveness and mercy. It's a better word. And church, we have come to this better mountain to worship God. Therefore, we must offer up acceptable worship to Him. But both mountains have to be understood for acceptable worship to take place. You see, the road to Zion had to pass through Mount Sinai. You can't cut Mount Sinai out of the picture and still worship the one true God. The the new covenant and the inauguration of the new covenant does not mean that we disregard and throw out the old covenant. No, the new covenant is the fulfillment of the old covenant. 
It's the true and better covenant. It's the heavenly covenant. It's the true substance of the shadows that they saw. We needed Jesus to fulfill the requirements of Mount Sinai in order to be able to approach the glory of God on Mount Zion. You see, if we lose sight of Mount Sinai, and we get rid of our Old Testament and all that, if we lose sight of Mount Sinai, we will start to think that we can come to God however we want. Or we'll come to Him however we think is best. Or however the culture around us says is best. If we lose sight of Mount Sinai. But on the other side, if we lose sight of Mount Zion... We just simply won't come to God at all. Or we think we can't come to Him. And oftentimes what we do is, if we lose sight of Mount Zion, we will create our own little miniature versions of Sinai we think we can climb in our own strength and our own power. You see, sadly, people, instead of enjoying the grace and receiving the work of Christ that he accomplished for them on their behalf, we like to instead create a little miniature version of Sinai and climb to the top of that. Like, we know there's no way we can actually climb Mount Sinai, but maybe we can make a little foothill that we can get up, right? Like, maybe we can just, and this is what really legalism does. This is what legalists do, and we all have a propensity towards this. We want to take God's law, and we want to reduce it and shrink it down to something manageable, something we can do, and then we'll climb to the top. Like, maybe it's a, we're going to be good moral people, right? At least externally, we're going to appear all right. Now, there might be a lot of sin going on in our heart. There might be a lot of uh, bitterness and, and unforgiveness and pride, but at least we're going to try to appear as good moral people. Maybe that's the hill we try to climb, and, and so we, we live out our lives this way, and, and, and we try to do the best we can, and we go to church, and we try to not lie, cheat, or steal, or anything like that. And because we then climb to the top of our own little miniature version of Sinai, we then try to approach the God we've created to worship. And all we've done is become like the heretic Marcion. We've taken the parts of the law that seem manageable to us. And that's what we're going to do. Church, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion must both be understood. You cannot offer God acceptable worship anywhere. You need to be on Mount Zion. And you only get to Mount Zion by climbing Mount Sinai, and you only do that by being united to Christ. You see, we wrongly think that it's, that it's either or, right? It's either Sinai or Zion. It's either law or gospel. It's either old covenant, new covenant. It's either works or grace, right? And our acceptable worship, listen, for us to offer acceptable worship, it's not either or, it's both and. It's both and. Uh, Pastor Kevin, if we have the the church logo to, to put up. Now, of things that matter in a church, the church logo is at the very bottom of the list, okay? I'm not even sure why we have it, and I promise you we've never talked about it up until this point in these, these last three years, okay? But, but as I was thinking about a good illustration on how to make these two mountains make sense, uh, I, I thought that the church logo might, might help us. Um, now, 
when you guys look at this, who, who, sees, who sees mountains when you first look at it? Okay. Who sees the letter F? Okay. So everyone sees both. You guys all raise, raise your hand for everything. Okay. All right. That's cool. Uh, initially, the concept was this was the letter F that is, uh, representing the city of Franklin bowing to the lordship of Christ. All right. That was kind of what got me excited about it. But also, it was kind of this image of mountains, which makes sense because we live in Indiana, and so it just seemed like a natural thing we should do. This way we all say, you know, hey, we looked at mountains this week, you know. But for the sake of the illustration, all right, uh, think of the, the small mountain as Sinai, and think of the large mountain as Zion. Are you guys with me so far? And think of kind of the angled slope up as the road to Mount Zion. All right? This is the mountain that we have come to worship on. But the only way to Mount Zion is through Mount Sinai. We needed someone to climb a mountain we could never climb. We needed someone to fulfill a law we could never keep. And we needed someone to conquer that hill that we could never conquer. And through faith in Christ, we are united to him. And because of Christ, we can now come to Mount Zion. It's a better mountain. It doesn't throw out and get rid of Sinai, but it's a better mountain that we get to come and worship God on. But we can only come in the name of Jesus. There's no way we're getting through Sinai without Jesus. And so we must offer worship and our prayer in the name of Jesus. This is, one of, this is the reason why we pray in Jesus' name. Have you guys noticed that we a lot of times, and I want to talk about this because a lot of times we do things just out of routine or out of habit. Most of us out of habit just close our prayers in Jesus' name, amen, right? And to us, what does that mean? That means it's time to eat. That's what in Jesus' name means, right? It's, it's, you're wrapping it up. This is the conclusion. But there's something much more important that that means, okay? Now, also, you don't always have to close your prayers in Jesus' name, okay? This is not a formula. This is not witchcraft. This is not a mantra like you have to say it or else the prayer doesn't get to God or something like that. Not at all. But the reason that many of us will at times pray in Jesus' name, and maybe it would even be better to say it earlier in the prayer, but the reason that we do that, the reason we teach our kids to do that, is because we do not come to pray or worship God by our own merits or in our own power. God hears us because of Jesus. And it is because we have been united to him that we have the right to pray and worship. We do not deserve to be heard by God. But take heart, church, Jesus does. Amen. And if anyone asks you what you're doing on Mount Zion, like how you got there, you just say, I'm with him. Amen. Right? And so that's what we mean when we say in Jesus' name. That's what we mean when we worship in the name of Jesus. We're acknowledging that we do not come to Mount Zion in our own strength. We do not get to the mountaintop in our own power or by our own good works. We come through faith in Christ. We've been united to him, and now we can stand on Mount Zion and worship 
him, along with the heavenly host, along with believers all throughout history and all around the world. Church, when we come in to worship God here and when we go out from here to worship God and serve him in our everyday lives, we are worshiping on Mount Zion. But acceptable worship is more than just how we come. That, that is an aspect of acceptable worship. If you're, not, if you're not coming in the name of Jesus, it's not acceptable worship. But there's more than just how we come. There's an aspect of acceptable worship that knows and believes what it will accomplish and where this is all going, right? You see, we can be prone to be timid in our worship and we can be prone to be a bit pessimistic in what our worship will actually accomplish, but look back at Hebrews 12, verse 25. And I want you to see what we have received and where this is all going in the future. Hebrews 12, verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Here in verse 25, we get a command from God's word to all of us who desire to be acceptable worshipers of God. And God's word says in verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. There, there was a penalty and a punishment for the people for not listening to God's word coming down from Mount Sinai. And the author of Hebrews has no intention to paint a picture that God is now much more lenient or understanding than he was uh, in the Old Covenant. No, the God of the New Covenant, he says, hey, if they did not escape wrath and punishment back then, how much greater will the wrath and judgment be for you who've heard even more about God? You've had even more of him revealed to you. You now have the entire canon of scripture. You've, had, you've seen the person and work of Jesus Christ. You've lived through the empowering of the spirit as it's indwelt his people. He says, how much more? This is a stronger warning for us in the new covenant to make sure that we do not refuse him who is speaking. We must listen to God's word. And one of the lies that we believe is that it's okay to just be indifferent to God's word. Like we can just be neutral to it. I imagine most of you that are here this morning, you've come to a Sunday morning worship gathering. Probably most of you are not antagonistic towards God's word, but I think at times we can be a bit indifferent to it. Oftentimes we can be neutral or indifferent to it because we're really pessimistic about it. Like what, what could it really accomplish in my life or in this world? But listen, if you are not receiving God's word, even if you are just neutral or indifferent towards it, you are in fact rejecting it. There's no middle ground here. You're either receiving it or you're refusing it. And here is a warning that there are serious consequences for refusing God when he speaks. Whether it be how he speaks to us through his general revelation, 
through his creation that is proclaiming the glory of its creator, or whether it be how he speaks to us through his word and through his spirit that is empowering his church. Church, we must hear, we must receive God's word. We must not reject it. We must not be indifferent to it. We must receive it. And church, as we receive God's word, we are in fact proving that we have received his kingdom. And church, it is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see, in verse 26, our author quotes from the prophet Haggai, who was looking forward to this new Jerusalem, this new Mount Zion. And he said that, hey, God is going to shake the heavens and the earth until everything that can be shaken will be removed. Until all that remains is the kingdom of God, Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, the city of the living God, for, it is the, for that is the only kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's the only thing that cannot be shaken in your life. You see, there will be small shakings of the nations. There will be small shakings that happen in the church, and there will be one final and ultimate shaking of the heavens and the earth. And in Daniel, we get a beautiful picture of this. King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream that none of his magicians or sorcerers could give an interpretation to, but the Lord revealed it to Daniel. And you find it in Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel describes to King Nebuchadnezzar what he saw. All right, Nebuchadnezzar saw this huge statue, which is representing all the different world kingdoms and empires, right? He saw this statue have a head of gold, which was most likely the Babylonian empire. He saw this chest of arms and arms of silver, which likely represented the Medes and Persian empire. He saw then kind of the middle trunk and the thighs made of bronze, which represented the Greek empire. And then he saw the legs of iron and feet of iron and clay that most likely represented the Roman empire. And then we see in the days of those kings of the Roman empire, another kingdom comes to power. And we see this in Daniel 2 verse 34, which we'll have up on the screen. Daniel says, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Church, the stone that struck the image and became a great mountain, that is the mountain you stand on today as you worship the one true God through faith in Jesus Christ. And get this, we know the future of the mountain. God's word says that the mountain will fill the whole earth. We, we heard about how the, God's filling that mountain in Uganda last week, right? From Justin and the, and the Williams family family, right? We're seeing this all throughout the world. We're seeing this in Franklin. We're seeing this in Uganda. We're seeing this to the ends of the earth. Just like Jesus said that his kingdom would start like a mustard seed and grow larger and larger, or like leaven and flour that would grow and grow. God will shake the nations and the individuals in those nations until all that remains is his kingdom with his worshipers on Mount Zion. Church, you see, everything we put our trust in besides the Lord is shakable. 
It's movable. It could be toppled over in an instant. But our worship and the ground that we stand on in Christ helps us grow a confident and an optimistic expectation of the future. I believe many times we come into this place to worship and we live out our days in worship and service to God and we do this with such a, a pessimism and a really skepticism of, of what this will actually produce in our lives and what this will actually produce in our world. And I've been guilty of this as well, right? As you prepare for a sermon or as you just prepare to come into worship, you wonder what will really be accomplished by all this. And we don't appreciate the full scope of what God is accomplishing when his people worship him rightly. One of the things this will accomplish is this will accomplish us to, it will allow us to persevere in the faith. If we think back to the overall story of Hebrews, right, our author is in the midst of encouraging people to endure in the faith, to persevere to the end, to finish the race. And one of the ways he does that is by us rightly worshiping him. This is how we persevere in the faith. We persevere by worshiping. But our right worship of him, it also causes his kingdom and this great mountain to be fully known and realized more and more in his world. And so this is our goal. This is why we do what we do, that there would be more worshipers of God on this earth. And we accomplish this by offering up acceptable worship and service to God. And church, the, the spirit of pessimism that creeps into our worship is unacceptable. We must repent of it, we must confess of it, we must turn from it, and we must confidently and optimistically worship God knowing that we are standing on unshakable ground. This is the only mountain that will remain. We have received an unshakable kingdom. And we who have come to Mount Zion, we are, we are just far too easily dismayed and discouraged. But it is when we worship, it is when God is exalted in our lives, that the ground beneath us starts to stabilize. Isaiah 33, verses 5 and 6. It says, the Lord is exalted. And this might be one you guys need to write down, you need to keep next to you anytime you check the world news or something like that. Isaiah 33, verse 5 says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. When you feel unstable, and we all have times we feel unstable, some of us more than others, but we're all a bit unstable at times. When we feel unstable, that is not ultimately a problem with your circumstance, but instead that is a problem with your worship. It's a worship problem. It's not a circumstance problem. It is a worship problem. And as we get our worship right, 
And as we approach God as we should, and as we exalt him above all things, we can watch and experience the ground beneath us start to stabilize because Mount Zion will not be shaken. We have received an unshakable kingdom, a kingdom that breaks the glory of earthly empires and grows into a mountain of worshipers that fills the earth. And therefore, let's not be surprised when the Lord shakes the nations and when the Lord shakes his church and when the Lord shakes our lives. But instead, let us respond as ones who stand on the unshakable ground of Mount Zion. You have received an unshakable kingdom, church. A right worship of God will accomplish great things in our lives and great things in our world. And therefore, we must come expectantly and optimistically about what God is going to do when his people exalt him and worship him. And so as we are trying to understand what acceptable worship looks like, right, we've talked about how we approach. We approach in Christ through faith in him. We've talked about where this is headed as this great mountain that fills the earth with worshipers of God. But what is our posture as ones living and worshiping on Mount Zion right now? That's what we need to address finally. What's our posture as ones living and worshiping on Mount Zion right now? Hebrews 12, verse 28. It says, Therefore, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. You see, yes, we are standing on Mount Zion instead of Mount Sinai. And Mount Zion is better. I think we can all agree. But even though those are two different mountains, there is the one same God, the one true God. And while Mount Sinai is not the complete picture and revelation of God, it is most definitely a necessary part of the revelation of God. And the God of Mount Sinai is the same God that we come to worship this morning. And therefore, verse 28 says, let us be grateful. That word grateful in the original is the word grace. Most literally, it could be written, let us have grace. In the context, it means let us have a lifestyle of grace. I mean, in light of the fact that in Christ we've been able to come to the God of Mount Zion and Sinai, this incredible city of God surrounded by angels and the saints from all around the world, all throughout history, in light of that, let us come to God gratefully, realizing that we can, the, the fact that we can come at all is all because of God's grace. Acceptable worshipers, are worshipers who are grateful for the grace they have received. Spurgeon once said, we'll have this quote up on the screen. He said, whatever service or worship we may render to God, we must begin by being receivers. Our first dealing with the Most High must not be our bringing anything to Him, but our accepting of everything from Him. 
You do not worship God rightly if you try to bring your offerings to him before you've really received everything from him. We come to worship God rightly when we come as ones who are grateful receivers, realizing that we have done nothing of our own strength that would get us onto Mount Zion. And therefore, let us have a lifestyle of grace as ones who receive grace from God and give grace to one another. That's typically how you can kind of get the pulse on if a church really has understood and received the grace of God. It is how gracious are they with one another. You can only extend what you've received. And until you've received God's grace, you're not going to extend it to many people. Acceptable worshipers live a lifestyle of grace, receiving it and giving it day in and day out. Acceptable worshipers of God, they also, call, they also come, what we see here, with reverence. With reverence. Reverence is to be careful with how you regard God's presence and His Word. It's to take care of it, to be mindful of it, to be careful in how you approach His presence and His Word. It's the opposite of coming flippantly to worship. It's the opposite of taking your service to God lightly. God's word says we are also to be in awe of God, meaning we are to have this wonder of God that leads to a right respect and a godly fear of him. And this is how we must come not only to worship on Sunday morning, but every day of our lives as we offer up service and worship to God, being grateful for the grace that we have received and coming reverently and in awe of him. And there are many churches, I believe, who come to God irreverently or flippantly. And I pray that that would never be true of us. I believe if God's word is not front and center in our worship of him, if, if it's not the main driver of everything that we say and do here, I would say that is unacceptable worship. That is a worship that is refusing to hear the one who is speaking. It's taking lightly the word of God that we have access to. And God is lovingly warning of us of this. However, there are many churches, and may it never be said of us, who are in real danger of not offering God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We must do this. We must come in lifestyles of grace, grateful to receive what God has given us, and we must come with reverence and in awe of Him. Why? Look at what verse 29 says. Verse 29 teaches us something really important about God. Hebrews 12, verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Now what does that mean? we get a little bit more insight from Deuteronomy 4, verse 24. This is where it's quoted from. Deuteronomy 4, 24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, here's where we have to understand with kind of this, this word jealousy, right? Because the Bible does describe there is a, a type of jealousy that is sinful. 
And this is what we're mainly warned against, all right, to not have this sinful jealousy. But with God, we know there's no sin, so this is, this is a righteous jealousy that he has. You see, oftentimes, sinful jealousy, our jealousy, it's born out of an insecurity in us, right? God does not have that. Or it's born out of us coveting something or envying someone else, something like that. But that's not the case with God. God's jealousy stems from his deep commitment and devotion to his own glory. All right, God's jealousy stems from his deep commitment and devotion to his own glory. And what's happening in Deuteronomy 4 is the people are being warned of idolatry and he explains to them that God will not share his glory with worthless idols. You see, it is idolatry and it is spiritual adultery that provokes this righteous jealousy in our God. And he says the same thing. God says this to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42 verse 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You see, this is the burning and consuming fire at the heart of our God. And our worship becomes unacceptable when we start giving his glory to others. When we start worshiping our nation or our leaders, when we start worshiping our pastors or our authors or our podcast preachers, when we start worshiping and exalting our worship leaders, or when we start exalting ourselves or our churches or our kids or our finances or our buildings or our comforts, God is the Lord and he will give his glory to no other. And when we exalt anything above him, out of his holy love for us and his righteous jealousy for his own glory, he will shake the heavens and the earth until all that is not of his kingdom topples over. He will burn and consume all that opposes him, and he will break and discipline and pursue us until we treasure him above all else because he wants us to have the best, and the best thing in the universe is God. And so, church, in order for us to offer acceptable worship, we have to keep both mountains in view. If we lose sight of Mount Sinai, we will think we can come to God however we want. If we lose sight of Mount Zion, we will think we can't come at all. But church in Christ we can now approach him. And therefore, let us worship him by living a lifestyle of grace with a proper reverence and awe of our great God. Let's pray.